From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It is great to see everybody. All right, we have a lot to cover today. It's a very special day. Today is the 17th day of Tammuz. Sorry, it's actually not the 17th day of Tammuz. It's the 18th day of Tammuz. How awkward. However, we're observing the fast day of the 17th of Tammuz, which I'll speak about momentarily. Welcome, Sandrine, and of course, welcome everybody that I welcomed earlier. Um, This series of Kabbalah Coffee is generously sponsored by Dr. Joy Maxey in honor of her dear mom. Thank you, Joy, for the sponsorship. Of course, the, uh, the learning should be a tribute to your mom's memory, and uh, may her neshama, may her soul have an everlasting connection, and of course, bring blessing to the entire family. The fast day, I want to begin with talking about the fast day. So, there are several fast days um, throughout the Jewish calendar. The most famous fast day, of course, is Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur. Um, it's a bit, that's a biblical fast day. And then there are other rabbinic fast days. For example, the fast of Esther, which comes on the eve of Purim. There is the fast of Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, which is coming up in exactly three weeks, which marks the day that both holy temples were destroyed, as well as other tragic events occurred in Jewish history. Uh, there is the fast day of Asar Beteves, the 10th day of Teves. And there is the fast day, I don't know if I'm missing any, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Oh yeah, Tzom Gedalia, the fast day of Gedalia, which takes place the day after Rosh Hashanah. And there is the fast day that we are observing, commemorating today, which is the fast of the 17th of Tammuz. Now, just to clarify, the 17th day of Tammuz was yesterday on Shabbat. We don't fast on Shabbat, with one exception, Yom Kippur. If Yom Kippur falls out on Shabbat, then we fast on Shabbat. But typically, we don't fast on Shabbat. Shabbat is a day of joy, a day of uh, peaceful and, and, and pleasurable celebration with God and with family. So typically, we mark that with eating, not with abstention from eating. So when a fast day falls out on, the, uh, on Shabbat, we push off the fast day until the next day. Hence, the, uh, the reason why we're fasting today instead of yesterday. Yesterday we eat, today we fast. It's known as a nidcha, which means a pushed-off fast day. It's pushed off for one day. Again, the only exception to that is, um, is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur falls out very often. I mean, every few years it falls out on Shabbat, and we, we go all in and we fast on Shabbat. Why is the 17th day of Tammuz a fast day? So historically, five tragic events happen on that day. Um, number one, Moses broke the tablets after, the, after he came down the mountain and saw the Jewish people worshiping the golden calf. So as you recall in the biblical story, the Jews get the Torah at Mount Sinai, or they get at least the Ten Commandments. Moses goes back up the mountain, and he says to the people, wait for me, I'll be back in 40 days. The people miscalculate. By the time he comes back down, they are worshiping a golden calf, and that took place on the 17th day of Tammuz, the day that he came down. 
and the day that he smashed the tablets upon seeing the, um, the worship of the golden calf. Right? We've all seen the movie, Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston comes down. Those who will not live by the word shall die by the word. Something like that. I paraphrase. Smashes the tablets. Boom, that was. Again, I would say today. It was yesterday, but we're commemorating that today with the fast. Second episode, historical episode that happened was um, during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. This is in the first temple era. The Jewish people were forced to cease offering the daily sacrifices due to lack of sheep. There was something known as the Tumid. The Tumid was an offering that was brought every single day. In fact, the word Tumid, Tumid means consistent. Tumid means constant, always. So there's a sacrifice, or there was a sacrifice, that was known as the, con- the constant or the continuous sacrifice. One lamb in the morning, one lamb in the evening. That's, uh, that, was, that was what constituted that sacrifice. Well, when the Babylonians, at some point in history, when they besieged Jerusalem, they cut off supplies, in the, this was in the times of the first temple, so at some point they ran out of animals and they could no longer bring the carbon the, the the daily sacrifice, and thus it was a day of tragedy. That's the second incident that happened. A third incident is that there was the burning of the Torah scroll that happened on this day, a terrible historical event that happened again in the times of the temple where a holy Torah scroll was burnt. An idol was placed in the holy temple on this day as well. These are all different episodes, but all happened on the 17th day of Tammuz. And finally, number five, I'll cut to the chase, in the year 69 of our common era, so a little under 2,000 years ago, the Romans after a lengthy siege of Jerusalem, the Romans finally breached the walls, the protective walls that were surrounding Jerusalem, and uh, those walls came tumbling down. The walls were breached, and the Romans got into Jerusalem, and it took just three weeks before the temple would be burned to the ground, and the Jews would be murdered and exiled throughout the lands. And that, of course, happened. The culmination of that, the burning of the temple, the destruction of the temple happened, in exactly three weeks from today, three weeks from the 17th of Tammuz, exactly three weeks, the 9th of Av. But it started, when we say started, it, the, the walls of Jerusalem were breached on this day, and that the handwriting was on the wall at that point. Once the walls of Jerusalem were breached, the end was, uh, was definitely near. Um, okay. In our tradition, so therefore, today is a fast day in commemoration of these tragic events. This Day also begins the period of time. Hey, Toba, welcome. This, uh, this time period also, today also marks the beginning of the time period known as the three weeks. The three weeks are a time of mourning, collective Jewish mourning. We don't take any haircuts. In case you're thinking I need a haircut, sorry, you got to wait three weeks. Um, three weeks for a haircut, no, no going to live concerts, musical events. We don't schedule weddings during this time. We don't, essentially, we don't, um, engage in very happy or publicly happy occasions and celebrations. We try to minimize, try to minimize the celebration in these three weeks. We minimize our joy, recognizing that these three weeks are the time when essentially the temple was on its way toward destruction. Now, that's a little bit about the day that we find ourselves commemorating. 
But let's go a little bit deeper about this, uh, about this concept. This is something that I'm pretty sure everybody here is aware of, but I want to emphasize because it's going to tie into our Kabbalistic dis- discussion about Holy Folly, Batman. So, why was the temple destroyed? The simple answer is because either the Babylonians in the first temple era or the Romans, the second temple era, overpowered the Jewish people and uh, yeah, they destroyed the temple. It was just a natural, physical occurrence. That's the simple reason. But it might not be the most accurate reason. Hey, Mariana, good to see you. Welcome. So it might not be the most accurate reason. In fact, the Talmud discusses, as only the Talmud can do, some things that the Talmud says we could never get away with. You know, like, why did this tragedy happen? We typically don't ask these types of questions. But the Talmudic scholars were able to ask and answer these questions. They had Ruach HaKodesh, they had divine intuition and had the ability to, to have conversations on that level. The first temple we know based on our teachings, was destroyed because of the three cardinal sins. Murder, immorality, and idolatry. The second temple, however, was destroyed on account of what might seem to be way less devious than those three sins. The second temple, destroyed by the Romans in the year, as we as I mentioned before, the year 69, the second temple was destroyed for something seemingly fairly normal and innocuous, the sin of sinat chinam, which is translated typically as baseless hatred. Baseless hatred. What is baseless hatred? Baseless hatred means where somebody dislikes someone else for no reason. Now, let me, uh, let me qualify that. The person who's doing the hating always has a reason, right? It's not like somebody says, you know, I hate for no reason. The person doing the hating always has a reason. But objectively, it's not a reason. Somebody might despise, dislike, hate somebody they've, they've never met before. Somebody they've never talked to before. Somebody they've never interacted with before. Why? They just hate them. Or somebody that you've seen, somebody that you know about, you hate. Not you. Present company excluded. None of us are in this boat, obviously. Right? But somebody might hate someone they've never seen, they've never met before. Sinas chinam. Somebody might hate the person they have met before. Um, on a level that is considered to be baseless. Baseless hatred. Sinat chinam. The Rebbe spoke about this very often, and he said that baseless hatred, which essentially, if we want, if we want to use a different word, we might use the word divisiveness within our own camps. Obviously, we're talking here about within the Jewish community. In other words, let me just backtrack for a half a second and make sure that this is clear. The Talmud says that the reason why the second holy temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 69 of the Common Era is because Jews were fighting amongst themselves. They couldn't get along with each other. Now, I would love to say that nearly 2,000 years later, we fixed that and all Jews get along. I would love to say that, but that's not always the case. 
It's not always the case. Unfortunately, we still find division within our own camps. We still find infighting. We still find divisiveness. We still find um, animosity plaguing our people, unfortunately. Reminds me of the joke that I've told countless times about the woman who goes to the post office shortly before, you know, in, the, in, the time, in, in December time, and she asks for Hanukkah stamps. And they ask her, and the clerk at the post office asks her, in what denomination? And she says, oh, even the stamps have different denominations. Anyway, you had to be there. So the po- <laughs> there's, there's divisiveness, unfortunately, that still reigns. And again, getting back to what the Rebbe said about this. The Rebbe said, if the cause of exile, if the cause of destruction is baseless hatred, then if that were, if that were no longer the, uh, present, then the temple surely would be rebuilt. Then Mashiach would surely come. Then the world would be, certainly would be a better place. And if it's not, if that hasn't happened yet, it only means one thing. It means that we're still stuck in that place of disunity, lack of unity. So what's the fix? What's the fix? If the cause of destruction is baseless hatred, what's the fix? How do you fix it? Not just with getting rid of the baseless hatred, but as the Rebbe said many times, with ahavat chinam, baseless love. In other words, if the extreme on the, on the hate side is baseless hate, then the fix, the tikkun, the fix, is not to go to the middle, normal love. It's to go to the opposite extreme, which is baseless love. I love you for no reason. In fact, you might give me every reason not to like you, not to love you. I still love you. Why? Chinam. One other translation of this would be free love, but I think that meant something else. Anyway, but this is, uh, right, baseless love. Baseless love. Baseless love means that I have every reason I might have, hopefully not, I might have every reason not to like you, not to love you. And yet, and yet, and yet, I love you. I love you unconditionally. That's the antidote to baseless hatred. And I hope what I'm saying makes sense. I hope what I'm saying, I hope I am communicating this clearly because really what I'm trying to communicate is a tale of three points. If we plot three points along a line or along a graph, then uh, the concept is plotted along three points along a graph. Let me explain. You have in the middle, you have something in the middle that we might call logical, well-grounded, well-founded love and tolerance, where a person understands that everyone has their individuality and I might, we might not see eye to eye, but I can still respect you and appreciate you and, and honor you and love you even or like you or maybe not like you, but love, whatever it is, we can find a way to, to get along. That's the middle. It's a rational way of thinking. I, let me just explain what I just said. I think it's irrational to think that everybody should think like me and if they don't, then they're a bad person. To me, that's irrational. It's irrational to believe that everyone should think like me, and if not, then you're a terrible person. I mean, seriously, that's crazy. That's Meshuggah, right? That everyone should think like me? I don't even think like me half the time. 
I don't even know what I'm thinking. It's, everyone should think like me. I wake up one morning and I think a certain way, and now you have to think like this, or else you're bad, you're trafe, you're 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 out. Come on, that's ridiculous. So the normative, if we were again plotting a graph, the middle, the middle, the kava inside the middle, the middle line, the middle point would be understanding that everyone has their individuality, everyone has their way of thinking, and so we can tolerate each other, respect, and even like each other, and even appreciate each other's quirks and idiosyncrasies and, and their own way, and everyone's own way of being. On the other extreme is baseless hatred, where not only do I dislike your position because it differs with mine, I dislike you even though we may, notwithstanding your position, I don't care about your position, I still dislike you. Why? Because I don't like you. Right? That's baseless hatred. Baseless hatred is, I don't like you. Why? Because I don't like you. The other extreme on the other side is, I like you, I love you, I care about you, for no reason. You didn't give me any reason to love you. In fact, you might give me all the reasons not to love you. I still love you. There's a middle and then extremes, poles. On the one pole, the negative pole is extreme hate which is baseless hatred, we would call this prejudice, bias, anti-Semitism, racism, etc. These are ugly and obvious forms of this. Hate for no reason. I hate you because of where your nationality is. You kidding me? That, that's, that's why you hate me? That's crazy. That makes no sense. Baseless hatred, right? Baseless hatred. On the other extreme is baseless love. I love you for no reason. You never gave me a reason to love you. You never did anything for me. You never uh, benefited me in any way. In fact, maybe you gave me all the reasons not to like you. Still love you unconditionally. The way to fix the extreme of hate is with the extreme of love, not with the middle ground. And this becomes a general rule in Judaism, in Torah, in Kabbalah, in Hasidic philosophy, the way you fix an extreme is with the other extreme, not with the middle. I remember when I was first learning these concepts as a teenager in, uh, in Chabad yeshivot in schools, remember the teacher, I don't remember which teacher, gave this example. He said, imagine you have a piece of paper and you fold, sorry, imagine you take a book and you fold the corner. You know sometimes people fold the corners um, as a bookmark? Corners of a book? Yes? Yeah? Okay. Um, thanks. Just looking for some feedback. So, um, any book folders here? Any book folders? I'm more of a, uh, I'm more of a um, bookmark type of guy myself. Um, but yeah, you know, people fold, fold the corners. So here's the, exa- here's the, uh, here's the analogy. If you want to straighten out the corner of the book or the piece of paper, right, the, the, the corner of the page, if you take the bend and you fold it back straight, as it were, it'll, it'll flop back to the fold. How do you fix the fold? You have to bend it all the way to the other side and then it'll go to the middle. You guys with me on this? Yes? If it's folded to one extreme, you got to fold it back to the other extreme, and then you can somehow eventually get to the middle. I have here the jacket of our book, right? So here the jacket is bent like all good jackets are, right? 
So imagine, oh, it's folded. I'm gonna, I'm gonna strain it out right here. Nope, right, it's not, it's not, it's just gonna flop right back. To fix it requires you to go all the way to the other side and then eventually you can get somehow to the middle. Your mileage may vary when folding paper, but that's the basic construct, maybe the visual or something to think about as we think about these concepts which are a little bit more um, conceptual. In concept, in theory, if you have a trait in one extreme and you want to correct it, tikkun, right, like tikkun olam, fixing the world, but it's not the world, this is us. If you want to fix, an, an, let's say, a negative character trait, you don't go to the middle. You have to go to the other extreme and then you can try to find the balance in between. Maimonides has a section in his book of Halachot, in his book of laws, Jewish law, called Hilchot Deot, which are the laws of... Laws, yeah, I mean, Hilchot are laws. It's the laws of human personality. It's the laws of human... There's how we think and how we act and how we feel. Basically, how to be a mensch, how to be a good person. And he talks about this exact topic. He says, whenever you have a character trait, you can have any manner of expression of these traits from one extreme to the other and any point in between. So, for example, when it comes to generosity, giving, you have people that are exceptionally generous on the one side. You have people that are exceptionally not generous on the other side. Then you have people in the middle who are sometimes generous, sometimes not generous, or generous with, within measure. But again, you have... A, a wide range of expressions of generosity or, or lack thereof from one extreme to the other and everywhere in between. So Maimonides says in general, it's always good to find the extremes, plot the extremes, right, one side, the other side, and then aim for the center, in general, aim for the center. He talks about a few exceptions, like when it comes to anger, he says, when it comes to anger, so there are people that never get angry, people that get angry all the time. So he says, don't find the middle ground. Sometimes get angry. When it comes to anger, go to the other extreme. Don't be, ang don't be an angry person. Um, but, 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 but within most character traits, find the middle. But what happens if a person realizes that they're in the negative extreme? Okay, so then the way to fix that, or the way to correct that, the way to adjust that, the way to move the needle is by going to the opposite extreme and then falling back to the middle, ultimately. But the first step, when a person finds himself stuck in a negative holding pattern, the first step is to jump all the way to the other extreme. The balance will happen later. The correction will happen on its own. But the first step out of a negative space is to jump all the way to the other extreme. So my friends, the reason why I'm saying all this, first of all, it ties into to this, to the commemoration of the 17th of Tammuz that we're doing today with the fast, and the idea that baseless hatred must be replaced with baseless love today more than ever. Today more than ever. We have all sorts of reasons to dislike each other. All sorts of reasons. We have community and, and, and religious reasons, ideological reasons, philosophical reasons, political reasons, all of the above. So many reasons to hate each other. Okay. How about practicing some pure 
um, baseless love. Unprompted, unwarranted, it doesn't make a difference. I have every reason not to like you. I still love you. Let's try to practice that. That is the antidote to the baseless hatred that caused the temple's destruction nearly 2,000 years ago. So that's the immediate time for today. But the reason why I'm talking about all this today is because our text, which, uh, which is called Overcoming Folly, our text is all about breaking down all of the things that we do that are, that are irrational and I would call them sub-rational behaviors. Irrational behaviors such as indulging our negative behaviors, such as indulging ourselves in things that are unbecoming, that are un, unfit for us to engage in. Why? Because it looked good. Because it seemed good. Because we felt we deserved it. Because we thought we could get away with it. Because we thought um, everyone else was doing it or no one else would see that we're doing it. Or that we needed to do it for some sort of other good that we convinced ourselves that this is the only way to get that. The premise of this entire work is that if we were thinking clearly, we wouldn't make bad choices. So what happens? How do we make bad choices? Because we're not thinking clearly. But in those moments of lack of clear thinking, we are thinking clearly. But it's just not clearly, clearly. Let me explain. In those moments in which we make negative decisions, what happens is intellectually, or somewhere inside, somewhere under the hood of our being, there is a, you know, think of it like a parking lot that has an arm. And if you want to drive into the parking lot, you have to take a ticket. And the arm goes up, and you can go through it, and then the arm closes again. You can't ram through that arm. I mean, you can try. I don't think it's going to be good for the car. Right? You, you, you have, the arm has to go up. Every time we, we make a decision, every time we act in a certain way, there's an arm inside of us that's going up and saying, okay, we can, allow, we can let this happen. The arm lets some of the most foolish things go through. The question is how? How can the rational mind allow sign off on such silly behavior. When I say silly behavior, I mean foolish behavior. When I say foolish behavior, I mean really not healthy behavior. Actions that later on we look back ourselves, not anyone else, we look back and say to ourselves, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? I cannot believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. What was I thinking? What was I saying? What was I doing? You ever have that experience? So it's a valid question. So ask yourself, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Very easy. In the moment, we had a story. We had a narrative as to why this made sense. And we convinced ourselves that this narrative was logical, was rational, made a lot of sense, and would not harm us. And we told ourselves the story. We said, this behavior, this, this action is okay. It's okay. I want it. I need it. I deserve it. Everyone's doing it. No one's seeing what I'm doing. It's good for some other purpose. Whatever the story is. I don't need to give you more. Uh, <laughs> we don't need to share stories here. We all have our own. We all have our own. That's like maybe not taking the ticket. That's like putting in a ticket. 
right? It's like we're feeding ourselves a rational or a rationalization. And we say, all right, sounds plausible. Arm goes up and we do it. Once we've done it, we look back and we tell ourselves, what was I thinking? That was a bad move. That was a bad choice. It's terrible. What was I thinking? In the moment, we had all of these thoughts. What, do you mean, what were we thinking? We had a whole litany of reasons, justifications, rationalizations, why this was okay. Not only okay, why this was good. So this book, this text, has been all about trying to break down where those mental gymnastics take place. Where those mental gymnastics take place, where it is that the folly actually lies. So our text over hundreds of pages, over 65 plus classes that we've been together, which represents 65 times 1.5. So about 100 hours of study together, right? This text has broken down in exceptionally fine detail. What are the stories we tell ourselves? What are those narratives? What are those justifications? What are those rationalizations? What are those fairy tales? that we delude ourselves into believing in order for us to sign off, to open up that arm, to lift that arm, to allow that choice to be manifest into action. Only later to tell us, to ask ourselves, what were we thinking? And throughout this text, we've had so many different, so many different justifications and rationalizations. And every time, the author, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber Schneerson, every single time he debunks it, he explains why it's not a good idea. And really what this whole, what this work is touching on is something which psychologists today and scientists today call being metacognitive. Being metacognitive means being aware of what we're thinking. So just to explain this for a quick second, as we go through our days, as we go through the day, as we go through our lives, there's this inner narrator, this inner narration that's going on in our heads. There's a story, there's a narration, there's a thought process, right? There's like, there's a narration that's going on as we go along our lives. Sometimes it, we don't notice it, we don't pay attention to it. It's silent, but it's there. It's silent to us, but it's really there inside. So scientists today extol the virtues of being metacognitive. Metacognitive means being aware of the narrative, being aware of how we're thinking, not just what we're thinking, but also how we're thinking. The thought processes that are underlying our choices. It's very, uh, very, a very Kabbalistic and Hasidic concept. Look, it's okay, science is able to catch it. After a few hundred years, um, Psychologists have caught up as well. The point is, being metacognitive means that we're not just making choices, but we're, we're aware of the process by which we made the choices. And that is really what this text has been trying to achieve within us, which is becoming more metacognitive. Not just being aware of the choice that we made, but being aware of what drove that choice. Why did I think it was okay to make that choice? And if I can become aware of the thought process before I actually make the choice, well, then I might be able to disrupt the actual making of that choice.
In other words, in other words, think of this as customs or passport control. And so you come, somebody comes in with papers, a passport, a visa, whatever it is, comes to the passport control. They look at the papers. Everything seems okay. And they're about to raise the arm, so to speak, and say, welcome to our country. Until a supervisor comes over and says, hold on, let me, let me look at those papers. And does a bit of a closer examination, says, one second. I'm noticing something a little bit uh, not so kosher about these documents. I'm noticing something a little bit fishy about this story. This story, this narrative, this, these papers, this, this picture doesn't make sense. I'm sorry, you can't get through. You're not coming in. That is the entirety, the entire purpose of this book. Over hundreds of pages. It's that when the, the thought comes to mind, when we start spinning our wheels internally and say, wait, it's, you know, I think I can do this or I should do this or I need to do this or it would make the most sense for me to do this because X, Y, and Z rationalization justification. And we're talking about here negative behaviors that later on we ourselves no other judgment, no external judgment. We ourselves will recognize this was a bad choice and we knew it all along. The goal is to become so aware internally that we don't fool ourselves into allowing this action through, but we act as our own supervisor. And we say, one second, hold on, one second. The story sounds a little bit fishy. Let's do a little bit more interrogation, a little bit more investigation. Let's look a little bit more closely at what the supposed uh, plan is or the benefit is or the objective here is. And let's see if this really does check out and have the opportunity, slowing things down to actually stop the action before it is taken. That's the goal. The goal is to become metacognitive aware of the thought pro of the process the internal process by which we allow negative choices to go through and if we're aware of the process we can slow it down if we slow it down we might be able to disrupt it interrupt it and not allow it to actually go through does that make sense does that make sense yes okay thank you does the book, so Joanna's asking, does the book address when we are triggered, when it's not a thought process, but a trauma response or fight or flight? That's a great question. Um, no, it does not. It does not directly address, um, you know, what I would call a more severe fight or flight response or traumatic, resp or tra traumatic response. Um, but perhaps some of the ideas could be applied in some cases. I would be very hesitant to apply this across the board because I think what you're, what you're asking, what you're really suggesting is very important. Because what we're talking about here are conversations that happen in our head, pros and cons, and we're like, okay, well, it makes sense. And the goal here is to disrupt that. But what you're talking about and, and what you're asking about is a case where it's not necessarily being, uh, uh, it's not, necessarily uh, um, taking the form of a rational conversation or a, uh, a logical conversation in internally. It's more of an instinctual, um, for whatever reason, you know, due to trauma or otherwise, um, an instinctive 
um, uh, um, response. And that might be a little bit different. That might be much harder to disrupt. That would be a much more difficult uh, uh, option to disrupt. However, I would say that even in that case, it might, it might be possible. I, again, I can't, I'm not going to say anything um, definitive, but it might be possible to become aware, to recognize the patterns, to recognize what the triggers are and, and what the traumas are, and be able to somehow, perhaps, perhaps slow it down and perhaps respond in a different way. I think the key here is slowing things down. That's really the key. The key to this text is the understanding of let's break down the process so that it doesn't become or it doesn't have to be inevitability. It's like, well, you know, I wanted it and I saw it and it looked good and it tasted good. And so I just did it. I, I just that's it. I just I just went in, went all in on it. That's that's kind of re- relinquishing, you know, control of it and saying, you know, this was this was uh, you know, an inevitability. The goal here is to understand that there's not it's not so much inevitable as it is the product the product of a process that's happening that we might not be attuned to so tune into the process and if we're tuned if we're tuned into the process we might have the ability to disrupt it so that's the goal the goal and again when it comes to trauma fight or flight um i'm going to leave that as a question mark because might perhaps outside of this conversation this is the normative negative decisions that we make that when we look back we we tell ourselves we ask ourselves, we, uh, we lament the fact that we weren't thinking properly. And this takes the form uh, in interpersonal relationships where the person says to the other, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm so sorry, I don't know what I was thinking. That's how that manifests in retrospect. I don't know what I was thinking. That's not really an honest statement because we, well, it might be honest, but it's not that we weren't thinking, we were thinking, <laughs> but we were thinking along the lines of rationalization and justification. And now we've sobered up. So now it's like, I don't, you know, I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. It wasn't me. And people say, it wasn't me. It wasn't you. Pretty sure the videotape, uh, you know, let's, ro- let's roll the CCTV. That was you. <laughs> the DNA, your DNA is all over that action. It, it was you. It's not that it wasn't you, it was you, but it was you in a different thought process. And the goal is to recognize that, slow it down, and behave differently. All of that is very logical. It's super logical. What essentially we're saying is that we can combat irrationality, stay with me for a second, irrationality with rationality. When I say irrationality, I'm referring to the rationalizations that we make the justifications that we provide ourselves that ultimately don't hold water and that we really know deep down don't hold water but in the moment we let it through i'm referring to that as the irrational behavior and the goal is to replace the irrational negative behavior with logical rational behavior in other words instead of sobering up later and being able to see the truth clearly later let's try to see that in the moment that's the goal. But today, and that he said consistently. The author has said that consistently throughout this text, that your the rationalization is no one's going to see. You know what? I'll get away with it. Let me do this. I like it. It feels good. No one's going to know. I'll be okay. The counter, the counterpoint is, what do you mean no one's going to know? Everyone will see it all over your face. Of course they'll know. <laughs> no one's going to know. I'll get away with it. No, you won't. 
<laughs> so that's the logical argument that, that one is, is meant to employ to disrupt. That's calling over the supervisor to disrupt the false papers that the animal, that the Yetzirah, the animal soul, the negative, the evil inclination is trying to offer to let this negative behavior go through. Our, go- our, our goal is to interrupt it and s- to slow down the process. Hold on, whoa, 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 one second. What's the argument? Let's break it down. Whoa, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound right. It sounds fishy. You're telling me that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z behind closed doors. No one's going to know about it. No one will find out about it. I'll be okay. And life will go on. No harm, no foul. Really? Really? No harm, no foul? It's not going to somehow erode my own moral, spiritual compass. It's not going to somehow be reflected on my face that everyone that meets me will, will realize, hey, there's something off with that guy. Or there's something that that person is doing something. You know, that's not, that, that's not going to. So the goal, I'm just giving you one example of uh, one of the follies that he cited in this book in a previous chapter. The point is, the goal is to slow it down, to be able to disrupt it, to think a little bit more clearly and truly rationally, to think rationally and not think along the lines of the rationalizations that are actually irrational. I'm sure we've all had that experience. We've seen people try to explain their way out of things. and They come up with all sorts of arguments, all sorts of rationalizations, and they're spinning their wheels, they're this and that and the other, and you're like, do you even hear yourself? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? That's crazy. It's mashuga. It's like spinning your wheels and explaining and justifying and rationalizing and excusing. And it's like, do you not see this clearly that this was wrong? It's not about anybody else. I'm just giving that example to understand that we do the same thing within ourselves, within our own heads. So the goal is to recognize that we do this, to recognize when it happens, slow the process down, and have the mental, the logical, the rational ammunition to iron dome this bad boy out of the, out of the park, right? Iron dome, psh, shoots that missile, shoots that rocket out of the sky. When you have the rationalization brewing, psh, blow it up and get back to rational, truly rational behavior. That's the goal. All of that is what, co- is what we covered in the first 350 pages. But today, we go extreme. And the way we go extreme is by combating folly with folly. Combating folly with folly, and let me explain. There is irrational, unholy folly. That means making bad choices bad choices that we we know later are bad but in the moment we justified it whatever bad choices foolish negative choices on the other extreme on the other extreme not in the middle in the middle is logical rational behavior that is healthy that's the middle what's the other extreme it's holy folly Hence the subject of today's email, Holy Folly Batman. It's Holy Folly. What is Holy Folly? In Hebrew, it's known as Shtus de Kedusha. Folly, foolishness of a holy nature. In other words, there's unholy folly, 
and that's sin, making negative choices. And then there's holy folly, which is the, which is the extreme opposite. And that means doing something right in extreme fashion. Going all in on what's right to the point that it's a bit mishuga. It's a bit crazy. It's a bit crazy. As I'll say a little bit later on, we're not going to get to this today. It's one of the subsequent chapters. The way to combat, like I said earlier, when the page is bent, the goal is to get it to the middle. You can't just put it in the middle and hope that it stays there. You got to go the other extreme and then come back. So if you find ourselves stuck in negative folly, then to get out of that might require a little bit more than rational thinking. It might require us to shift into a place of holy folly. So Adam's asking very accurately here, very uh, on point, what's an example of holy folly? So what does that actually mean? That sounds, sounds dangerous, perhaps. Like, what, what, what is holy folly? Good. Holy folly is in general, I'll give you an example soon, is an extreme commitment to what's right beyond the norm, beyond what makes sense. The previous Rebel once spoke about how in America, he came to America in 1940, he said in America, there's this fierce dedication to lunch, like 12 o'clock, workers, 12 o'clock, oh, you take lunch at 12. He said, if only we were so dedicated to holy things like that, <laughs> irrationally. Like, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, the time comes to pray, that's it. Doesn't matter that we're on a phone call for business, right? When it comes to lunchtime. I think today it's a little bit different. Today it's, but back in the day, you know, 12 was 12, right? 12 was 12. You're in the middle of a business deal? All right, we're taking lunch. We'll come back after lunch. Are we committed the same way for spiritual matters? That when it comes time to pray, to study Torah, when those times come up, that we put everything, we throw everything away, we say, oh, I got, I got my, I got my shir, I got my class, or I have my, uh, I got to have mincha now, I got to pray, sorry. Give me an example. I've, I've uh, shared this story before. There's a Chabad rabbi in Minnesota, Rabbi Moshe Feller. He is, he's a riot. I don't know how else to describe him. He is a riot. He's hilarious. He's, he's like, one of the longest serving American Chabad emissaries still around. He's the head shliach, the head, the head Chabad rabbi to the state of Minnesota. He lives in St. Paul. And uh, he has a story. He was trying to, the story goes that he was trying to meet with this professor at one of the local universities, Jewish professor. He wanted to get him involved. And um, this professor wasn't interested. He was Jewish, but he wasn't interested in religion in an Orthodox rabbi, Chabad, nonetheless, let alone Chabad. This guy wasn't interested in this. But the guy was so, the rabbi was so persistent, he finally gave him an appointment. And the appointment is late in the day. And Rabbi Feller steps into to this professor, to his, uh, to his, um, his office. And the meeting starts. 
Maybe the meeting was running a little bit late. Finally gets in. Anyway, the meeting starts. A few minutes into the meeting, he says, uh, I'm sorry, please excuse me. I need to pull up to the, to the corner of your office. I need to pray. The afternoon prayer before, before, uh, sun, sun, uh, before sunset. Professor says, listen, I gave you a half an hour. Or maybe I gave you 15 minutes. Whatever it was, I got, you have a meeting. I'm not going to give you any more time. So the rabbi says, it's fine. I have to pray. Like I, can't, I, I know like in the middle of a meeting, and I've been trying for months to get this meeting. But it's, I got to dive. I got to pray. He peels off to the side, to the corner, pulls out a prayer book, puts on his, you know, his hat and jacket, whatever it is, and he prays. This professor was so taken by this rabbi's commitment to his prayer that he gave him more time. He ultimately became a friend of Chabad and uh, an incredible shift in transformation. This is an example. Oh, Sandrine is saying lunch is sacred in France. Okay, right. So in France, it's still like that. In America now, uh, we're all workaholics. So no one eats, no one sleeps, no one. You know, it's like it's it's all work all the, all the time, which is its own its own challenge. Um, but yeah, the previous rabbi was speaking about like lunch exactly at the time. Rabbi, to Rabbi Feller, mincha was I don't know what the right English word is um, is sa- sacred. I mean, it is, but to him it was an absolute. It's not like, you know what, I, this meeting is for a good cause. It's for you know, Judaism and the state and the city and, and for the furtherance of Jewish education. So, you know what, I'm gonna, God will understand if I speak to him a little bit later. God, I was speaking to one of your kids. A very important conversation. I'll speak to you later. No, to him, mincha was mincha. Even though it meant that he might lose or was going to lose his meeting. That doesn't make sense. He could have rationalized it ten ways till, to, I don't know, whatever the expression is. He could have rationalized it a thousand ways why it would be okay to push off mincha, to push off the afternoon prayers till after the meeting finished. And you know what? You and I might say, he, even, even in retrospect, he would have been justified to do that. He would have been justified to do that. But yeah, dive mincha a little bit late one day. It's okay, it's for a good cause. It's, it's to help another Jew, it's, it's, a good, it's a good cause. But for him, this was an absolute. This is what we call holy folly. Holy folly means that I have such a fierce commitment to the right thing that I'm going to do it even though it doesn't make sense. It's a fierce commitment to what's right even when I could justify not doing it. I'm still going to do it. Just like we sometimes just like we're capable, let's, let's make it safer, of acting in an irrational way, in an unholy way, in a way that defies logic in the, on, the, on the side of unholiness, you and I also have the ability to act in a holy way, in a righteous way, in a good way, in a positive way, that also defies logic. This we would call not irrational, but super-rational transcending logic, not being limited by logical. Logic says I should stop the meeting, sorry, logic says I should finish the meeting and pray later. Doesn't matter what logic says. Prayer is prayer, that's it, I'm going to pray now. And ultimately, in that story, it worked out for him. It worked out very well. Because here he saw a rabbi, a Chabad Shliach, a, a, a rabbi who was so committed, a fellow Jew who was so committed to God, the prayer that despite his 
the difficulties that he put on this meeting, right? The professor, the big professor that made it so difficult to meet with him and so serious about this meeting and so strict. The rabbi basically said, I have something that I'm a little bit more dedicated to than you. Notwithstanding how important you are, there's still something that's more important. And I have a dedication to something, to a greater power, to a higher power that's greater than you. And ultimately, the professor was impressed by that and taken by that, and that had a greater impact than anything else. And so I'm giving you an example of a story in which it had a happy ending, a story that uh, takes place with a, a name and an address, so to speak. I know the rabbi, I've heard him tell the story. Um, but the point of this is that we can exist along three points. Irrational, unholy behavior on the one extreme. Logical, kosher behavior or super rational, holy behavior. One, two, three. And the big idea that we're, that we're going to launch into today is that how do you combat the extreme of negative folly? It's through the extreme of holy folly. It's through a fierce commitment to what's right without taking logical considerations, um, without taking into account lo logical considerations. I want to share with you a Talmudic story that also um, reflects on this. From Tractate Ketubot. Share my screen and let's jump right in. Now there's a mitzvah, as you may know, there's a mitzvah to be mesameach chasan v'kala, to bring joy to the bride and groom at a wedding. It's actually a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to be part of the celebration and help enhance the joy so that they feel good on their wedding day, so that bride and groom feel good on their wedding day. There's actually a mitzvah. Again, I don't know that this mitzvah exists. Well, I mean, I don't have a mitzvah, but that this, that this uh, perspective exists in, in our Western culture. But, you know, it's, it's not about me showing up and being happy. It's not about me toasting or roasting the bride and groom. It's about making, bringing them joy on this special day. So let's, let me read this Talmudic passage. With regard to the mitzvah of bringing joy to the bride and groom, the Talmud relates... The sages said about Rabbi Yehuda bar Eloi that he would take a myrtle branch and dance before the bride and say a fair and attractive bride. That's like a, a phrase from Jewish literature basically saying that, oh, what a beautiful bride, the groom, etc. Oh, it's beautiful celebration. He would dance with a myrtle branch. What, what did the dance look like? I don't know, it wasn't there. But imagine a rabbi, a great sage, dancing with a myrtle branch. Not like, not doing the tango with a myrtle branch, but somehow dancing, you know, holding a myrtle branch. Let's continue. Rav Shmuel bar Rav Yitzchak would base his dance on three myrtle branches that he would juggle. So this other rabbi, and we're going to focus on him for a second, Rav Shmuel, the son of Rav Yitzchak, so Rav Shmuel would actually dance juggling three myrtle branches. So um, the myrtle branch, by the way, is the hadas, which we use on Sukkot. The myrtle, like a myrtle twig, myrtle branch. So he would take three of them and he would juggle them. 
Rabbi Zaira said, he was a contemporary, the old man is humiliating us. It's embarrassing. Here's a rabbi, a great rabbi, Rav Shmuel, an older rabbi who's juggling myrtle branches at a wedding, acting silly. The kids do that. Why is this old? The kids, the youth, the teenagers, whatever, the clowns do that. Why is a rabbi, a great rabbi to boot, an elderly great rabbi to double boot, why is he juggling myrtle branches at weddings? He said, the old man is humiliating us as, as through his conduct he is demeaning the Torah and Torah scholars. So here's what happened at the end. When Rav Shmuel Bar died, when this rabbi, the juggler, henceforth known as the juggler, when he died, a pillar of fire demarcated between him and everyone else. And we learn through a tradition that a pillar of fire demarcates only for either one person in a generation or for two people in a generation. In other words, the fire surrounded him and separated him from everyone else. And that fire represents a holiness. That fire represents someone who is one of a kind. The fire demarcated between Rav Shmuel when he passed away and everyone else, indicating that the juggler was no mere juggler. He was indeed a very, very holy man. Rav Zera said, in uh, retrospect, his branch was effective for the old man as it was due to the mitzvah that he fulfilled so enthusiastically, due to this mitzvah that he fulfilled so enthusiastically that he was privileged to receive this great reward. And some say that Rabbi Zaira said his nonsense, shtute, his shtus, his folly was effective for the old man. And some say his method was effective for the old man, but let's look at that middle understanding. His nonsense was effective. Effective meaning his nonsense elevated him. His shtus elevated him. Which means that when there was a mitzvah to rejoice with the bride and groom, to make merry, to enhance the simcha, to enhance the celebration, he took it seriously. He didn't think logically, look, I'm a scholar, I'm an old man, it's not going to look nice, I have to worry about my honor, my perception, how are people going to see me? You with me on this? My image, right? I need, to, I need to cultivate an image of respect. As an elderly scholar, I need to be the one who is at, with the book, with my, my glasses over here, right? Something like that, right? My glasses at the end of my nose and, and very serious and very quiet environment. I can't let loose at a wedding. I can't juggle. I can't be the clown. That's not my persona. You know what that means? His head is getting in the way of the mitzvah. He didn't let that happen. He didn't let his head, logical considerations, get in the way of the mitzvah. The mitzvah is to be misameach chasan v'kala, to rejoice and to increase the joy of the bride and groom. And you know what he did? He did exactly that. Not take into consideration how he looked in the process. He wasn't concerned about how he looked. He was concerned with the mitzvah. This is an example that our, that our text will bring. We're going to jump into our text momentarily. That our text is going to bring to illustrate someone who is so completely dedicated to doing the mitzvah, to doing what's right, beyond the logical or rational considerations. He could have been in his head. And he could have said to himself, look, I'll be at the wedding. 
I'll go in a circle. I'll dance the hora, right? I'll put my uh, bam, bam, ba, da, ba, da. I don't know if they had that tune then. It's going back 1,700 years, 1,800 years. Now I'll go around. I'll go around the circle. I'll show up. I'll do a little toast, l'chaim. I'll give a little blessing, and I'm done. Nope, it's not what he did. He was the old guy at the wedding who juggled. He juggled myrtle, of all things, myrtle branches. <laughs> this guy. He juggled myrtle branches to the point that Reb Zera said, what are you doing? You're making a mockery of Torah, of Torah scholars. It's embarrassing. Like every teenager who saw their parent <laughs> do anything. It's embarrassing. Will you please stop? Will you please stop? Not my kids. My kids are an exception. They love my bad dad rabbi jokes. They love them. Anyway, right? Stop embarrassing. That's what Abzera said to Reb Shmuel, to Reb Shmuel. Stop embarrassing us. You're a Torah scholar. You're one of us. You're one of the older ones. And you're juggling myrtle branches? Stop. Stop. Right? It's like, psst, stop. Everyone's looking. And then when he died, the pillar of fire shot up. And he said, oh, actually, I was wrong. Rav Zayr said, I was wrong. He was right. Hishtus, his folly, elevated him. In other words, he did the right thing. Because why wouldn't you do that? If there's a mitzvah to be misameach and v'kala to make, the, to, to, to increase the joy of the wedding, so why aren't you doing that? Oh, because how you look. Okay, all right, so then it's about you. Okay. We do this all the time. Right? Mitzvah to get tzedakah. But, you know, I have to be careful. Shtus means you take logical considerations and you push them away a little bit. Now, it doesn't mean... Okay. It, it means putting away the logic and going all in on the mitzvah. Going all in on the good deed. Not letting the rationalizations, the justifications, even the holy ones, get in the way. And that's the other extreme. If we can do things that are so foolish in the negative, let's do things that are, that are also foolish in the positive. The Mishkan, the tabernacle, the first sanctuary, temple for God, that was built in the, in the desert, the portable sanctuary, was built of wooden boards, wooden planks of acacia wood. In the Hebrew and the biblical language, they're known as atzei, Shitim. Atse means boards or wood. Shitim. Typically it's translated as acacia wood. Shitim, acacia wood. But shitim also comes from the word shtus or shtut. Atse shitim means boards of folly. How do you build a space for God? What are the walls of that space? What is the perimeter of that space? Holy folly. Batman. It means a fierce commitment to what's right not based on logic. A fierce and unwavering, unrelenting commitment to what's right and what's good, not allowing logic to cool it down. Not allowing logic to water it down. Because we know that logic waters things down. We know that logic cools things down. We're excited and then we're like, ah, take it easy. Ah, slow it down. Slow it down a little bit. That's not what built the Mishkan. That's not what built the, the, the sanctuary of God. It's built of the walls, the, the perimeter, walls of shtus, 
walls of folly. What type of folly? Holy folly. That's what builds the space for a connection with God. A fierce commitment to what's right. It's davening mincha. It's praying the afternoon prayer in the guy's office at the right time, not later, at the right time, even though essentially you're giving up the meeting that you've been trying for six months to get. Doesn't matter. That's my line. This is how I roll. That's my commitment to, to what's right. That's, that's my atse shitim. That's my walls of folly. That's my holy folly. And that creates a space for God. That creates a holy environment. We can't live 24-7 on that level. But in certain areas, we can. Especially when we find ourselves slipping into the, others, the other extreme. If the paper's folded the other way into the negative side, then we got to go. we got to flip the paper all the way back to the, holy, to, to, to the side of holy folly. And then we can somehow get to the middle. I hope all this makes sense. With this in mind, let's jump into the text. The text is, I don't know any other way to describe it other than delicious. Maybe I'm, it's a fast day, so I'm thinking about it, food analogies. But this text is delectable. Wait, same thing. Scrumptious. Wait. Anyway, it, it, this text is absolutely stunning. Let's jump in. I'm going to share my screen with you. Um, chat, Discourse 26, Chapter 1. By the way, before we do that, I just want to tell you one more quick thing. Very quick. What I just told you about how the Mishkan, how the tabernacle, the sanctuary was built from Atzei Shittim, which can be translated as Acacia wood, or according to Kabbalah and Chassidus, um, uh, boards of folly, in other words, holy folly, fierce dedication to the truth, that is from the, the final discourse that the previous Rebbe penned in 1950, or was published, and actually was published for the day of his published for Shabbat, the 10th day of Shabbat. He actually passed away that morning. It was published, obviously, before Shabbat. And the book, but the date on the discourse was that date that he, that he passed away on. Um, and so that became like his last will and testament. And every year on that anniversary, which was also the anniversary of when the Rebbe became formally, uh, our Rebbe became Rebbe, so he would say a discourse on that, uh, on that same topic and would speak about this topic so many times. So it's almost like the the defining discourse, the defining teaching of the Rebbe's leadership was this idea of fierce commitment to what's right beyond what's logical. Don't be only in your head. Be able to go beyond that. All right, with that in mind, let's jump into our text. Discourse 26, chapter 1, Holy Folly. We thus return to our opening verse. A wellspring will go forth from the house of God and shall water the valley of Shittim. Notice that word Shittim. Shittim is related to the word Shtus, which, is, which means folly or foolishness. So listen to this. A wellspring, I'm going to read this again. A wellspring, this is, the verse refers to the Messianic era, etc. But, but, but we're going to understand this, what it means for us. A wellspring will go forth from the house of God, okay, whatever that means, and shall water the valley of Shittim. And I'll tell you very clearly what this means. It means how do you water the valley of Shittim? How do you counteract folly, negative folly? It's through the wellspring that goes forth from, forth from the house of God. It's from that holy commitment that also defies logic. In the realm of holiness too, he says, there is the state of folly, holy folly. As our sages said, and we read it before from the Talmud, his folly stood the venerable sage 
in good stead. That was the rabbi of Shmuel who used to juggle the myrtles. That's holy folly. He was so committed to the mitzvah of gladdening the heart, of, 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 of bringing joy to the wedding, to the bride and groom. He was so committed, he didn't care about how he looked. He didn't think about his respect. He didn't think about how others were going to perceive him. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. Holy folly. That means doing the right thing, notwithstanding all of the logical considerations. Folly in this sense indicates that which is superior to intellect, what I called before super rational. Similar to the verse, why did this insane man come? Listen to this from the book of Kings. The question was asked, why did this insane man come? Madua in Hebrew, he calls him Madua Baha Meshuga. You ever hear the word Meshuga? Meshuga is not a modern term, it's not Yiddish, it's Hebrew. Meshuga means crazy or insane. It comes from scripture, in the book of Kings. And as we see, as we look in, in footnote uh, 416, this is in reference to Elisha the prophet. When the prophets would prophesize, they would be oblivious to everything around them and would seem insane and out of their mind due to the nullification of their senses. So evil people who follow the idol bow would refer to the prophets as insane in the literal sense, out of disgust. So the, the idolater said about Elisha, why did this insane man come? They called him insane. You know why? Because he was a prophet. Why is a prophet insane? Because a prophet is not someone who logically discovers something. A prophet is someone who's operating on a higher level, higher than rationale, higher than rationality, higher than intelligence. A prophet is channeling the word of God from a place that's beyond Seichel, beyond intelligence. The prophet was called insane as the prophet's way was contrary to that of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, i.e. lacking sensitivity of the natural faculties connoted by the tree of knowledge. So now he brings in the tree of knowledge and now we're going to go onto that topic for a moment which is very important. And let me just give you a very quick preview of, of the Tree of Knowledge conversation. Before the sin, before the sin of Adam and Eve, they were purely attuned to God and to truth. They were so purely attuned to God and truth, they didn't notice themselves. They weren't self-aware. How do we know this? The Torah tells us. Torah specifies this. They were not wearing clothes, and yet they were not embarrassed. In other words, they weren't aware that clothing was a thing. They just weren't aware that it was a thing. They were unclothed, and yet it just wasn't a consideration. Why? Because they were so attuned to truth, to God. What happens after the sin? The Torah tells us very clearly. What happens right after the sin? They realized, they knew, they realized that they were naked and they hid and they try to cover up. So what happens? What happens? Before the sin, they're naked and unaware. After the sin, they're aware of their nakedness. What does that mean? 
It's the same story with the rabbi and the dancing and, and the juggling. What are you aware of? What are you aware of? Are you self-conscious? Or are you aware of the moment and the task at hand? The rabbi of Shmuel, who juggled the myrtles, was not aware of himself. He wasn't thinking of how he looked juggling the myrtle twigs. His, the, his mitzvah was to make the bride and groom happy. He was going to make them happy. He was going to be a clown. How did he look? How did others perceive him? Irrelevant. He wasn't embarrassed to pull the quote from Genesis about Adam and Eve. They were unclothed. They weren't embarrassed. Why? They were operating in a different space. After the sin, self-conscious. Now they're aware. Now they're embarrassed. Oi, I don't have clothes. How am I going to look? Is everyone looking at me while I'm dancing? While I'm juggling? Maybe I shouldn't juggle. Maybe I should be the, the, the sage who is very respectable and, and, and doesn't do wild and crazy things because what are people going to say about me? They're going to lose respect for me and I want respect. Simple question. How self-aware are you? Now, being self-aware is now a good thing, right? In 2022, it's good to be self-aware. I don't mean that type of self-aware. I mean self-aware to the point that it holds you back from doing what, you're, what you know you should be doing. So self-aware that it becomes debilitating. So self-aware that you become um, suffocated by self and self-perception. So self-aware that you're looking at yourself constantly in the mirror so you can't move forward. You can't do what needs to be done because you're looking at yourself. Adam and Eve before the sin did not look at self. They were plugged into truth, plugged into God. After the sin, well, the sin marked the moment which they turned to themselves. At that point, they looked at themselves. We're naked. Oi, let's hide. Let's cover up. What we're really talking about is the beautiful innocence that is nowadays reflected most predominantly in children. A beautiful innocence, precociousness, purity. Just living in the moment. Just being in the present. There's no class of people who are living more in the present than children. It's, not, it's, it's, it's without a doubt. The, a, as a demographic, the people who live the most in the moment to the exclusion of everything else, children. They're completely in the moment. They have no idea what's going on. When they're eating, it's all over them. When they're playing, they're all in, right? Sometimes they take off the clothing and run around the house. It's, there's no self-awareness. There's no self-consciousness. It's all about the experience. It's all about the moment. It's not about self, how I look in the moment. It's about being in the moment. In the language of modern psychology, it's being in the flow or in flow. Yeah, I'm standing at the, standing at the, uh, at the, at the free throw line in, in a basketball game. And I'm just in, in the moment, in that zone, Steph Curry just shooting threes, right? Like it's going out of style, just completely in the moment. If you think about how you look, if you think about your form, how's my follow through? You're done. You're out. You're out. If you're golfing, and you're thinking about your mechanics, you're in, the, you're, in, you're in the water. 
you're in the water. It has to flow. You have to be in the moment, not outside observing the moment. Rav Shmuel was in the moment. Adam and Eve before the sin were in the moment. After the sin, they were out of the moment. They were in themselves and out of the moment. What does it mean to live in a state of holy folly? It means to be in the moment. To be in the moment of spirituality. To be totally enraptured by the moment that you're not thinking about, how do I look? Am I going overboard? Is it too much? Is it too little? All of those rational thoughts means that you're not in the moment, you're observing the moment. And that's a different situation. Back inside. Back inside. Oh, oh, and by the way, that's why the prophet was called insane. The Nevi'im, the prophets. Why? Because they were the ultimate in the moment. They were channeling the word of God. It didn't matter that they were lying on the floor without clothing. <laughs> Sometimes. They were channeling the word of God. It wasn't about how I look. It wasn't about optics. This is the opposite of the, of, the, of, the, of the sin of the tree of knowledge. The sin of the tree caused this sensitivity to self. Sensitivity means the sensitivity to self, this awareness of self and obsession with self. How do I look? As we find that right after the sin, as I mentioned a moment ago, they knew they were unclothed. And the question is, did they, did they not know that they were naked before? But the meaning is that at first they were insensitive. They were un Of course they knew they weren't wearing clothes, but it wasn't a thing. They weren't paying attention to it. And then they became aware of their nakedness. As is written earlier, they were both unclothed and felt no shame. Meaning that they did not regard their lack of clothing as being at all unseemly. But then, after the sin, they knew. Meaning they became aware that they were unclothed. That's what happened with the sin. Pre-sin, they weren't wearing clothes. Post-sin, they weren't wearing clothes. The difference is, what were they aware of? Before the sin, they were not aware of the lack of clothes. They, I mean, they, were, they, they saw that they weren't wearing clothes, but it wasn't a thing. It's like the child who's just precocious. It wasn't a thing to notice. Because what? Because we're in the garden. It's great. Clothes, I don't know what you're talking about. This is great. The experience is great. After the sin, suddenly, oh, self-aware. Let's continue inside. Maimonides states, Rambam states in Mornavuchim, guide for the perplexed, that a wise man challenged him. How could sin bring Adam to a quality denied him earlier, that of intellect and reason? As is written, the eyes of both were open. So again, this, this, this fellow, this wise man, this wise man asks Rambam, Maimonides, how is it possible that Adam benefited through sin? He sinned, and then his eyes were opened. How does that make sense? God rewards sin? They became more intelligent? They became more aware? That seems to be the opposite of what sin should cause. So Maimonides answered, Rambam answered, that the new knowledge was no advantage or superiority whatsoever. Oh, you think that's good? That they became aware that they were naked? That's good? That's not good. That's not advantageous. At first, Adam's knowledge was intellectual. He could not, and this is in the language of, of Maimonides. We're going to move to Kabbalah here soon, but this is how Maimonides explains it. At first, Adam's knowledge was intellectual. He could not employ popular natural perception like attractive or repulsive whatsoever. In other words, he didn't notice 
physical appearance. Then as a result of sin, of thus sin, his rational faculty was diminished and his natural perception became active in determining what is beautiful or ugly. This new state is very much inferior to Adam's earlier state. Now, we're not going to stick exactly with the way Maimonides explains it. That, that before Adam and Eve were intellectual beings and then they became physical, sensual beings. We're, we're going to move a little bit off of that and, and say just what, what happens, the difference between pre and post sin is that pre-sin, they operated on a different wavelength. Post-sin, they operated on a very much physical, um, uh, physical material wavelength. And that is a step down, not a step up. They did not gain through sin. They lost through sin. Zohar states, now let's hit Kabbalah. The eyes of both were opened to the murkiness of this world. To the murkiness of this world. Before... This was not so earlier, when they observed and had open eyes for what was above them. And this is really the, the way we're going to stick with understanding. Maimonides, again, as the philosopher, is explaining it philosophically. The Zohar explains this spiritually. <clears throat> before the sin, and this is exactly what I've been explaining uh, up until now, before the sin, Adam and Eve were just in the moment, in the spiritual moment, in the divine moment. They were in the Garden of Eden in a, in a spiritual, godly space. And that's all they were aware of. They weren't aware of self. They weren't aware of their own nakedness and what that meant. It didn't mean anything. They were in God's garden. After the sin, they became aware of self and aware of the murkiness and aware of temptation and aware of all of the vices of human beings. And then they looked down and said, you know what? We should probably cover up. They became aware of self. That's like when you're at a wedding and you're dancing with abandon and then you see the photographer come by or the videographer and then you're like, oh, actually, I'm not sure how I'm going to look on camera, so let me just step out of the circle. That's you head-checking yourself. You were in the moment. You were in the moment. You were dancing with abandon. You were feeling it. You weren't thinking about yourself. And then a camera came along and suddenly you're like, oh, oh, how do I look? Uh-oh. And then you run off to the side. That's what happened. The sin, the sin focused Adam and Eve away from, you know, before they were looking outward at the world, at truth, at God, at the garden. And the sin caused them to start looking inward. How do I look? How do I look? How do I look? Yeah? Look okay? Look okay? Am I dancing okay? My clothing okay? That's what happened. They lost their purity. They lost their innocence. They lost their naivete. They became very sophisticated, self-aware, self-conscious creatures. Good luck with that. In a similar, in a similar, in similar man manner, the prophets, when visited with the spirit of prophecy, were in a state of divestment from material existence. They attained the quality and category of Adam as he was prior to sin. This means that their natural senses were nullified and were insensitive to the material world. They didn't look at themselves. They were completely in a state of connection with God and rapture with the divine word. It wasn't about appearance at all, at all. This explains why prophets would remove the garments during prophecy, as I mentioned earlier. As written regarding Saul, he too removed his garments and prophesied and fell unclothed. This is the state of Adam before the sin, utterly unaware of the need for clothing. Likewise, the prophets during prophecy did not know or recognize the need for clothing at all because they lacked 
the natural perception. Removal of garments means divesting oneself of the natural faculties. It means literally removing garments, but also metaphysically removing garments, meaning removing an attachment to self and consciousness and awareness of self and looking at self in the mirror. Hence, the Prophet was termed Meshuga, insane, due to the nullification of the natural senses acquired through the sin of the tree. In other words, a prophet in ancient times, an ancient prophet was in that moment experiencing life pre-sin, pre-Adam and Eve, tree of knowledge sin. They lost the self-awareness that was visited upon humanity through the sin. They transcended that. They blew that up. And for at least that moment of prophecy, they existed in a completely different space. By the way, you and I have all, have all had that exp similar experience. Not the same, not the same, but along those lines. You and I have all had that experience in life where you were so enraptured by a piece of music, art, by a vision, by a, by a blessing, by God forbid, the opposite of tragedy, where you lost sense of how you looked. You lost self-awareness, self-perception, and you were just completely taken in the moment for better or God forbid the opposite. And at that moment, you didn't care about how you looked. You didn't care about how others saw you. You, didn't, you weren't even thinking about how you looked and how others, others saw you. It was com getting completely lost in that experience. The prophets got lost in a divine experience, just like Adam and Eve before the sin were lost in a divine experience. What did the tree of knowledge do? It took them down many, many rungs, down into themselves, into this world, into physicality, into sensuality, into this experience, into bodily, physical experiences. Now like, okay, let's put on some clothing. That's what happened. They lost the condition of being lost. They lost, lost. And they found themselves. But in finding themselves, they lost the gift. The gift of pure abandon. That was the experience of the prophets. That pure abandon, that pure losing oneself in God, in divine expression, in divine communication. Which is why the prophet was called Meshuggah. Because that's not how people act. Hence the prophet, I'm going to start again over here. Hence the prophet was termed insane due to the nullification of the natural senses acquired through the sin of the tree. He undid, they, and that, those moments the prophet undid the result of the tree, the consequence of the tree. This is also similar to the folly of the venerable sage, the one who juggled the myrtles, three myrtles in front of the bride and groom at the wedding. The old sage, the old rabbi, who made himself look foolish. Why? Because he didn't think about how he looked. He was completely lost in the moment of doing the mitzvah, of, of gladdening the hearts of the bride and groom, that it wasn't about him. Similarly, Akavya ben Mahalala declared in the Mishnah, better that I be called a fool all my life and not be wicked even a moment. Fool in this context is the folly of holiness, the direct opposite of worldly folly. Worldly folly means the lower folly that we've been speaking about this whole time for 350 pages. Worldly foolishness means irrationality. As previously explained regarding all the numerous manners of folly due to the yates or heart of the evil inclination which deludes and misleads man and deflects him from the path of truth. That's irrationality. That's worldly 
folly. The cause for this is the knowledge and perception of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that conceals the truth. Ever since that sin, we became less than logical. Ever since the sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we gained an, ins- an internal yetzerhara. In the times of Adam and Eve, it took the form of a serpent that was external. After the sin, when they ate of the tree, they ingested, they took in that drive. They took in, not that they ate the serpent, but they ate from the tree of knowledge, and that now became part of the human experience. Part of the human experience is that drive that pulls us into all sorts of irrational, very foolish behavior. So what's the antidote? Just to put all the pieces together. He doesn't put it together in this chapter. The next chapter, he puts it all together. But what's where are we going with all this? The antidote to the previous 350 pages. All of the, all of the spinning in our head. Oh, it's okay if I do this, if I say this. You deserve it. I deserve it. She deserves it. He deserves it. Blah, 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 blah. All that stuff. No one's going to notice. No one's going to see. It's better for me. It's better for him. It's better for God. All that stuff. All of the justifications. All the rationalizations. All represent irrationality irrationality, worldly negative irrationality, making bad choices. How do we counteract that? By going pre-tree, by going prophet, by going myrtle juggling, by going to the place of holy folly. When you find yourself struggling with something so silly, when I say silly, I don't mean to, to, uh, to discount it. When you find yourself struggling with something that you know is not healthy, you know it doesn't make sense, but you're struggling with it. It's a real struggle. And every time you do it, you look back and you tell yourself, what was I thinking? What was I doing? It's not me. You keep, you, but you, you can't get out of it. You're stuck and you can't get out of it. So what do you do? There's two options. Either you can talk yourself into what makes sense, to what's normal, what's holy, but normal, or you can just go the other extreme. Take a mitzvah and just go wild in the mitzvah. Just go extreme in the mitzvah. Take a mitzvah of prayer and just be dedicated. Doesn't matter if I'm tired, doesn't matter if I have work, doesn't matter that I have other things. This time to this time, every day, I am going to pray. Whether you want to do it for 10 minutes, 15, 20, 30, 45, an hour, it doesn't make a difference. This time is sacred. I am dedicated irrationally, sorry, super rationally to this time of prayer. Let that be the foil to the irrational, unholy folly. Are you with me on this? If we find ourselves struggling with unholy folly, let's bend the paper the other way and choose a mitzvah. Find a mitzvah. I mean, if it could be a similar thing, great. But if not, anything that you are dedicated to. You're going to give tzedakah. And you're not going to start looking at exactly, you know, the bank account, how how much you're just going to give. You're going to look, you're going to take a mitzvah lighting Shabbat candles. You're not going to think about you know, work and schedule and traffic and, and, and this and commitments doesn't matter. When candle lighting comes, I am lighting candles. I'm going to make it work. 
I, I'm that doesn't matter that other people are going to say you're crazy. What about this? What about that? I am dedicated. I'm coming to shul. I'm lighting candles. I'm davening, wrapping tefillin, whatever it is. Find studying Torah from this time to this time. Find your thing to go holy folly, Batman on. To go, you want to? I'll just use the word extreme. To go extreme, because on a very simple level, if we can go extreme in a negative way then we can certainly go extreme in a positive way. And in fact, not only can we, but we must, because ultimately going extreme in the holy side is what starts moving us out of the extreme in the unholy side. So to summarize, today we observe the fast of the 17th of Tammuz, the day that in the year 69, the walls of Jerusalem were breached and the handwriting was on the wall those fallen walls of the temple's destruction, which would take place three weeks later. The temple was destroyed for baseless hatred, hatred that is irrational, and the antidote, as we've been saying this whole, this whole morning, is going the other extreme. Not irrational hate, irrational love. The antidote in our text to irrational negative behavior is irrational or super-rational positive behavior. It's a fierce commitment to what's right and to what's holy beyond the limitations of rationale, even holy rationale. It's being committed to what's true, to what's right, to what's holy beyond limitation and limited definitions. It's the rabbi who juggled myrtles in front of the bride and groom even in his older age. It's the rabbi who stopped his meeting, the meeting that he was waiting months to have, who stopped his meeting to pray. And in our lives, it's the stance that we take, the stand that we take to do what's right, even when logic might dictate otherwise. It's those acts of heroic holiness holy folly that bend the page the other way and that ultimately schlep us out of negative irrationality into the side of holiness. Thank you very much for joining me this week, this Sunday, today, for a cup of coffee. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope this will supercharge your week to a week of holy commitment and good deeds and good actions to transform your life from the inside out. All right. Blessings, everyone. Mariana, thank you for the blessings. Um, Adam, thank you. Uh, great to see everybody. Any questions, comments, or wishes? Jump in. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you, Toba. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne and John. Great to see you guys. Austin, Austin, Texas in the house. By the way, you guys remember Mariana, right? From Chile. Yes, uh-huh. It's unbelievable. We, uh... We got, we got the crew. We got the crew together. It's amazing. Nice to see familiar faces again. Great to be here. Great class. Thank you. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, you guys, it's great to see you. Uh, great to see everybody. Have a wonderful week. Uh, have an easy fast. Um, the fast is over tonight. Um, 9.17. 9.17. Okay, 9.17. Tim said 9.30. I'm going to go with 9.17. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
two options. We're going to go the, the earlier one. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a daytime fast, so it starts sunrise, ends at, at nightfall. So, yeah, it's a nightfall ending, so about 9.17. Check your local listings, obviously. You can always go to Chabad.org and check out the times. Just type in your zip code. Um, and, uh, I mean, look, the, what we want is an end. There's an end to all pain and suffering and an end to the exile, an end to all the negativity. And the coming of Mashiach, a better world, a perfected world, a healed world, a happy world, a world in which there's no more suffering, no more pain, no more poverty, no more hunger, no more negativity, and only blessings and goodness and godliness and peace and prosperity for us and for everyone. Let us say Amen. And we should not need to be fasting for the rest of the day. Mashiach should come, take us out, and, and uh, no more fasting. <laughs> even, even for selfish purposes, we should want Mashiach, right? Even just to not have to fast. Tish above, we don't, we don't need this. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been 2,000 years. It's been way too long, too many broken hearts, too many tragedies. We need Mashiach, and please God, very soon we will experience the ultimate joy. All right, great to see everyone. We'll see you soon. Shavuot Tov. Lots of blessings, lots of love. We'll see everybody. Take care, everybody. Sending lots of love. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.